Hello friends and welcome to another episode of the Board Game Shenanigans Podcast where we review the games we've been playing and discuss board game related topics. My name is Bob. And I'm Natasha. And this week we're actually going to be doing things a little different. Normally we review some games, but today we are joined by the owner of a local publisher here out of Grand Rapids called Grand Gamers Guild, Mark Spector. Thanks for joining us, Mark. Thanks for having me. So you have a Kickstarter that is wrapping up, correct? Uh, yes. Uh, the Artemis Project, Satellites and Commanders, the expansion to the Artemis Project, will uh, June 3rd, it'll, it'll close. I've wanted to chat with a publisher specifically about the Kickstarter process because it's always kind of intrigued me. Sure. So first question that I have is, when do you decide to put a project on Kickstarter? Do, when do you say, all right, this pers- specific game is more ideal for a Kickstarter release or this game is just straight to release? Like, how do you make that decision? Sure. So, I mean, I think the first thing you do when you consider Kickstarter is when you have no money and you have no tenure and you got to figure out how to get a project done. You're like, oh, I can use other people's money to do that. Sure. Um, You know, in a way, it's almost you can go to a bank and get a loan and then repay a loan to one big institution or you can go to Kickstarter and get a loan, so to speak, from 500 to 5,000 people. And then you owe them a product in its place. Um, so, and obviously I've, I've gone to Kickstarter since my very first project in 2016. So how do I decide which projects go to Kickstarter and which don't? Um, the truth is I probably should have put every project on Kickstarter, including the ones that I straight published, but I actually, I don't really like owing people anything. And I know that sounds weird in the context of being a project to project Kickstarter based company. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I could break away from Kickstarter and be as successful as a company like Stonemeyer Games, I absolutely would. It always sort of baffles me too when we see these mega publishers go on Kickstarter. Uh, but anyway, everyone's got their own motivations. And um, yeah, so these days, it really just comes down to the scope of the project. So for instance, the Artemis Project Satellites and Commanders was an opportunity not only to get the expansion out there, but to reprint the Artemis Project, which I literally don't have the cash to do. So it must go on Kickstarter. But my tinier things like the Holiday Hijinks games, which sell for $10 and um, are 18 cards, those I have the cash flow to do. I mean, honestly, in my opinion, running a pub, being a publisher is kind of like a giant engine building game, a real life engine building game. <laughs> you gain more and more and more steam. And that's that steam being cash in the bank. And then you have a lot more latitude to decide, am I going to do a Kickstarter? Or am I going to go straight to retail um, or rather straight to production and then through normal retail channels and things like that? Hmm. Hopefully I answered your question. That was like a really long answer to a probably a pretty simple question. (laughs) When you have the money and when you don't. Yeah, 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 kind of. Uh, But then also, I mean, it also comes down to the scope of a project and how much you want to see it blinged out. You know, do you want to have all the shiny bits and bobbins or are you, you know, like the holiday hijinks games, there's nothing to bling out there. Mm -hmm. I mean, I suppose we could spot coat the boxes, but. Yeah, UV spotlight on the front. You yeah, know, that executive like, linen finish for exactly. the cards. <laughs> but but it's unnecessary for, for what the game is. And it's nice to be have a, a $10 game. Do you yeah. want to buy a $10 game? Absolutely. Well, it kind of like gives people a uh, easy entry point into your brand of games, right? True. So, although, although my brand is kind of funny because my brand is to do something mostly that I haven't done before. I get bored really easily. Mm-hmm. I don't like to play the same games all night long, and I don't like to publish the same games. So it makes it really hard for me to carry my audience from one project to the next. I just have to hope that I curry the favor of a lot of omni gamers who are willing to take a chance on a lot of different things. It's worked so far. 
Yeah, nice. And so how did, I probably should have led with this question, but that's how this podcast goes. But how did you get into publishing? All right. So the story of how I got into publishing begins all the way back in 2005. Um, actually, a little bit prior to that. I, I was in a professional group. I sold insurance. And when you give a presentation, you're always supposed to say something about yourself, you know, some dark little secret or whatever the case may be. Sure. And so my <laughs> secret was that I was a gamer. Um, at the time, I had been running and continued to run a uh, 3.0 Dungeons & Dragons campaign for about eight years total. Oh. And so one of the guys comes up to me after the meeting, and he's like, oh, I'm a gamer too, and we should hang out. And so we did, and he was a really good guy. We became really good friends. We're still friends, uh, even though he's out in California, and I'm here in Michigan. And then he eventually invited me to go to Origins, which I went to for the first time in 2005, and it was a total mind-blown situation. I mean, not only mm -hmm. was I introduced to the crazy amount of D&D &D and third-party supplemental product that existed, but there was this whole world of board games that I never even knew existed. Then um, I, you know, slowly crept deeper into the water. I didn't just attend Origins, but I volunteered for the convention, mostly because I'm cheap and I was trying to figure out the system as to how I can get the most out of my experience. So you give a little yep. bit of time, you get a free badge. You give a little more time, you get a free hotel room, things like that. So that was volunteering for the convention. Then I started running events for the convention. Then I started running an entire event team for the convention, running other publishers' games. We would do 10 different publishers, anywhere from 1 to 10 titles per publisher, 150 to 200 events at Origins um, over the course of the con. And then I um, said, hey, I want to run my own show. Came back to Grand Rapids and co-founded Grand Con way back in 2013. Uh, got out of that in 2016 and um, transitioned right into being a publisher. So, All right. And the way that kind of happened was I was listening to Jason Slingerland of the Building the Game podcast. He was lamenting about how he had had a title returned to him by two different publishers. And I was sort of on the bubble and I paused the podcast and I called him up and I said, hey, I want to publish your game. So <laughs> we set a meeting for a couple weeks later and didn't actually end up publishing that game, but uh, did end up publishing Unreal Estate. It wasn't a fantasy themed game at the time. It was uh, sort of a like a, a Miami-themed game, a very tropical feeling with these brightly colored houses and things like that. And uh, yeah, we turned that into Unreal Estate. Wow. How do you go about publishing a game? That's a great question. I'm still trying to figure out. <laughs> um, it, it someday really, you'll get it. Someday, someday I'll get it. Yeah. Uh, it really is about being a project manager. I sort of became a project manager inadvertently in college. I was sitting around in my dorm room one day and they announced over the loudspeaker that, you know, the position of hall president was open and you know, they're taking nominations. And I, I said to my roommate, should I do that? Do you think I could do that? He was, well, he and I were not the same kind of people. <laughs> Bless his soul. Yeah. Anyway, I decided to do it. And, you know, a couple weeks later, I was in charge of residential activities and a budget. And it just kind of cobbled things together. Everything from movie nights to my biggest event ever was I actually ended up running a uh, an art auction that was combined with artwork from um, students from the art school at DePaul University, as well as local artists, like comic book artists that I was able to find in Chicago who donated work. Um, and so I learned how to run projects. Um, and I've always been a salesperson. So I know how to mostly, you know, manage prospects, whether it's an individual or a business prospect and take that through the process and just spun those skills into managing a board game project from, you know, looking at the design and signing a contract and um, and taking it all the way through a product that hopefully I can sell because I, I mean, like I said, I've been selling forever. Huh. Interesting. So this is just the next logical step, right? Uh, if you're into board games, I think so. Although I want to just say, I mean, 
I rely on a lot of very talented people. I am by no means a one-man show, not even close. So yeah, I, I contract with those people. I do the simple things. You manage it and run like the PM, right? And then you, you've got your designers and your- Yep, yep, yep. People with real talent. And I just, uh, you know, I as I said earlier, just I sweep the floors and write the checks. <laughs> nice. So I'm curious- the whole okay, we're gonna get dive into the process of that's Kickstarter. fine, nitty gritty okay. into the weeds. Yeah, all right. So you obviously start by acquiring, signing a contract with a designer. Yep. And how do how does somebody go about submitting a game design to you? So I get game designs through my website, and also I was fairly active in attending uh, both Protospiel and Unpub in my early years. Although I'm only six years in, it's still early years. Fingers crossed. And you know, ideas are a dime a dozen, and manifesting those ideas into a working game is a whole, whole, whole step where people eliminate themselves. You know, um, and but but they they have the guts to put it out there, put out their creative vision, and have it critiqued by people, and um, you know, and then evaluated by someone like me. Um, and really, since I'm a one man show in some ways, um, it's it's really my ego and my tastes that drive what comes next. So it's a matter of sitting down, getting me to sit down and play your game. And then I decide uh, whether or not I want to take it to next steps. And then next steps is usually bringing it back home, playing it with some people who I really trust, people who have more historical knowledge of the board game industry and different tastes, because I'm not actually against publishing a game that I'm not the biggest fan of. Um, Usually I say that if I'm not a flag-waving champion for your game, you don't want me publishing it. It's not fair to you, and it's not fair to me, and it's not fair to the game. Mm -hmm. However, like I said, there's people I trust, and if they say, this is an amazing pick-up-and-deliver game, you know, for instance, I'm willing to be open to that. And then i got to think about what that looks like and how I'm going to sell it if I'm not a flag-waving champion, but it's still a solid game. After that, then I work with uh, my graphic designer, who is also my art director, um, to sort of put a vision on what this thing is going to look like. Are we sticking with the story that the game was presented with, or are we changing that story? Like I said, Unreal Estate was originally sort of like a Key West Miami type vibe, and Jason, the designer, was very open to changing it to, you know, sort of high fantasy. And the artist I had in mind, Corinne Roberts, who is also local and incredibly talented, was available, and so it all kind of cinched together really well. And she produced art, and I had another friend in the industry, Chris Kirkman, who was willing, uh, who had done the Kickstarter thing before and ran his own company, and he was willing and available to help me through that process um, as my graphic designer at that point in time. And slowly that uh, snowball rolls faster and faster, and boom, you launch. You hold your breath and say a prayer and... Hope for you know, the best. And, and, and then hope it funds. <laughs> yeah. So uh, did I answer your question? I, I don't know if I if I even answered further questions or whatever the case may be. I mean, you were definitely making our way through the progress. So okay. yes. Okay. okay. So yeah. When so when somebody shows you a game at let's say Unpub or whatever, how far along do they have it? Is it literally just sheets of paper in sleeves? Is it hand drawn boards? Are there different variations of how people have their game presented to you? Uh, people, based on their time and their skill set, bring their prototypes to all different levels. Um, I have I'm trying to remember. I mean, when I wrote, when I signed Pocket Ops, it had a military theme on it, and it was, it was presented. I mean, it's a very simple game, but graphically, it was really nice, and it was presented as a little military operation type of thing. I'm trying to remember. I feel like, yeah, Unreal Estate was uh, sort of these 
stylized houses on slips of paper in card sleeves. So, I mean, I'll look at anything. It's, it's really all about the experience I have once I'm engaged with it. Well, your your position is to take that idea and then obviously cultivate it into what a game could be, right? Right. right. Yep, absolutely. Okay, so you've signed a game. You're like, yes, I want to publish this game. And it's really early on. There's not much art. There's not much theme. What What's the next thing do you do? So do you start sitting down with your graphic designer and say, all right, come up with concepts for me? Do you start putting like bits together? When do you when you start like fleshing things out and start like bringing the vision together. Yeah, sure. So really the next step is to talk to my developer who currently is now Joe Hopkins, the designer of endangered. He is super talented and, and an actuary and a data analyst. So he brings balancing skills to the table, like nobody's business. He also is really creative in looking at the design space that's left and finding places to plug in new content where I didn't even think about Uh, He and I recently drove to a convention together, talked about some of the games that he's working on for me, with me, and um, it just was mind-blowing the way he sort of uh, just found these nooks and crannies to to put more content into. So it's really awesome. And, uh, you know, from there, I would say it it begins with, with with the developer, but then simultaneously talking to the graphic designer, who at this point will also function as my art director, who then talks to the artist, and it's really a lot of interactivity and back and forth to come to a vision that everyone can buy into and and that is enthusiastic to work on i mean at the end of the day i get to make the call like i get to uh, you know bang the publisher gavel because it's my money and i make the decision but i also don't want anyone forced to work on something that they hate if i brought a game to any developer and they're like man i don't know what i can do with this i don't enjoy this i don't see what you see in it um i don't know where i can bring this that's going to be a miserable project for them, and it's not going to end up in a product that shines at the end of the day. Does the designer have a lot of say after you've signed it, or are they, as soon as you sign that game, they're kind of... I have been very fortunate in that every designer I've worked with has always been enthusiastic about staying on as part of the process. I'm fully prepared to have them cut themselves out of it, um, not everyone is a salesperson. Not anyone, not everyone has ideas beyond what they've presented. Um, I definitely want them to be happy with the end product. So they're, at least so far, they're always going to be communicated with. Whether they respond to that communication is their choice. And whether they go, oh, that gives me another idea. What do you think of this? Is, again, their choice. They can, you know, choose to go along for the ride or just watch the ride happen. Um, but like I said, everyone I've worked with so far has been enthusiastic about participating. What's yep. been your most popular game so far? Um, I mean, honestly, I'd have to say Endangered. Uh, the people who love Endangered are ravenous for Endangered content. Mm. You know, it was my worst Kickstarter ever. Um, paired to to the backer number, 786 backers and $40,000 in funding, um, which most people would be perfectly happy with. Mm-hmm. Um, at that point, I held myself to a higher standard um, in the sense that I... All the effort we put into that, both within the gaming world and on honestly outreach beyond it, uh, that game deserved more. So I'm not one to cancel a project. I recently wrote an update that said I'm like a heads down, ever forward kind of guy, you know, maybe even cut off my nose to spite my face kind of guy. Who knows? And uh, when the game actually came out, the reviews were so strong. See, that was we had a little pre-podcast conversation, right, about I don't 
I don't work the social media too hard. I don't work BGG too hard. I feel like if a game has merit, it's going to ascend on its own. And that's what happened with Endangered. I could have pulled up stakes, said, hey, we didn't make enough money here. Let's retool this and see how we can do more. Um, but I don't believe in doing that. I believed in the game. I believed in the effort we put into it. And when it came out on the open market, the reviews were universally strong and and it took off on its own. Mm -hmm. And so the follow-up campaign, Endangered New Species, did three times the backers and three times the money. Um, Monarch Butterflies, which I simply did as a pre-order from my website uh, rather than a Kickstarter, did great. We actually o opened it uh, for 24 hours on Endangered Species Day and got another flood of orders in. So yeah, I mean, the cream rises to the top, right? And mm -hmm. Endangered, Endangered has a lot of legs. Um, for good or ill, there are many endangered species. There's a lot of content we can keep going with. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, I mean, endangered uh, has shown its stuff. My favorite, I think, is the holiday hijinks ones. Oh, the thanks. Small little games. I love those uh, escape room style games, and those are, those are just they're small and they're nice and they're easy and they're family friendly. Yep. So you know what's funny about those is. Again, everything I do, I get really easily bored and I try to do something different. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think anyone was expecting me to come out with an escape room. I don't think anyone was expecting me to come out with an 18 card game. And I knew that by investing in the holiday, uh, the Kringle Caper specifically, because actually we kind of came up with holiday hijinks as a, as a, like an overarching philosophy or and that's not the word I'm looking for, but like the, the thematic tie between all of the games after the fact. Mm -hmm. So the a Kringle genre of games. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That we were going to tie them to holidays and, um, and kind of push that angle because, you know, people get together on holidays and, you know, after your belly's full and you want something to do, why not play this for an hour, you know? Mm -hmm. So anyway, no one was expecting it and it did well. But it didn't do like gangbuster numbers or anything. Mm -hmm. But then we came out with um, Independence Incident and then Holiday, and then Kringle Caper sells a little bit more. Then we came out with Pumpkin Problem. Then now both of those are selling a little bit more. Yeah. Then we came out with Cupid Crisis and so on and so forth. Next one is going to be called Birthday Burglary, um, which isn't a holiday, so to speak. But it's everyone's personal holiday, right? Yeah. For sure. How many times yeah. do you go online and say, I'm looking for an activity for my gamer birthday party? I mean, come on. Yeah. What would be yeah. better than to, you know, break this sucker out? You just, have to come, you just have to do annual ones, like annual holiday, um, yeah, Halloween ones and Christmas ones. Well, that's up to Jonathan. <laughs> um, I've actually, I would love for him to do a um, a Krampus caper, like a little more sinister um, Christmas one. Uh -huh. But yeah, we have plans for Groundhog's Day and uh, St. Patrick's Day and April Fool's Day. And um, we've begun doing outreach to creators or designers beyond Jonathan so that there can be collaboration on more ethnically bent holidays like Chinese New Year and Hanukkah and Passover and things like that. Oh, so yeah. we want to make sure we're, um, you know, honoring the holiday by bringing in a creator who can speak to a broader vision. Um, anyway, yeah, so they're, they're going to keep growing and um, I, I love them. So. Yeah, I do too. I love those escape room style games. They're fun and they're unique and and they're small, like they're just easy. You just pick them up and exactly. Well, they're in the. What's nice about having a game that is that small is it's extremely portable too. You can just throw it in your purse and or your pocket, and mm -hmm. you know you could be at a restaurant or whatever, and let's bust this out and play it. So mm -hmm. it's very accessible mm -hmm. in that way. Yeah. Well, and if you're having a party, I mean, well, just a Fourth of July party or a Halloween party, and it's all about gaming, mm -hmm. you buy half a dozen of them, break them out at 7 p.m., and be like, okay, everybody, go. You know, yeah, who can and, get it done first? And, right, and you're all sort of competing. I think. I mean, we had a a local uh, gaming bar do that sort of for Valentine's Day, where they included Cupid Crisis in their in their in their Valentine's package. So, which was, brewery? Uh oh my gosh, 
It used to be Craft Beer Cellar. Now it's called House Rules Board Game Lounge. Yeah. Okay. House Rules. I was wondering. Yeah, we got a great brewery around here. We have this, too. We have too many. We are. We have a lot of breweries, yeah. but this brewery has a huge board game selection. Yeah. That's awesome. We are beer, beer city USA for a reason. Uh-huh. It is amazing. It's cool, and you see people go there who aren't into board games. It's they really draw a huge, uh, diverse crowd. A lot of people go there and they play checkers or connect mm-hmm. four to simple games, and then you see all the you know big board games out there too. Well, it's it kind of leads back to the whole thing. The reason why I like board board games is that social aspect of it, right? Mm-hmm. You can disconnect from technology or phone and you can sit down and have an actual conversation. Well, sometimes, I mean, if you're playing a deep Euro, some of the times I don't want to be spoken to because I'm, <laughs> <too, laughs> yeah, I'm too busy thinking. But it gives you an opportunity to connect with people on a more real level than just texting people. Yeah. Yep. At what point do you say this game is ready for Kickstarter? How far is it developed? Like, is it? 80% to being a complete game? Is it 70? At what point do you say, all right, I'm ready for Kickstarter? Right. So I try to do as little back end post Kickstarter work as possible. Most of the time, the presentation I make on Kickstarter is a completely done game. Although let me use uh, Satellites and Commanders as an example. Um, the the presentation we've made is is a fully complete expansion. Okay, it's done. We never hit a stretch goal. They would be getting the backers would be getting a complete product. But uh, we are doing stretch goals that are extra content, extra satellites. I'm sorry, chariots actually, extra chariots and new uh, expeditions, events, and buildings. And that content literally does not exist. The designer is playtesting it, you know, during the campaign, getting it ready for prime time so that we can get the art done um, as soon as possible, and then just bang it out. But the product is is pretty much ready to go, except for the things that are being created now. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not a situation where we have a lot of content stored in our back pocket that we're just holding back. Um, this is a situation where we are we are in motion, uh, making it happen. So you talked about extras, Kickstarter extras, yeah. and that's one of those things that I think encourages people to back a Kickstarter is the extras. Yep. So let's say you set a funding goal for $10,000 for this particular game. Is that truly the goal you're trying to get, or are you trying to get, let's say... 25,000, but you're going to now incorporate a bunch of stretch goals to try to achieve that number. No, I mean, the way I do it is the money I present that I ask for. I mean, there's there's a pretty wide parameter of what I need. I mean, I do, thank goodness, have money in the bank. I have games out there that are bringing in income. So yep. it's not, you know, 100%. I desperately need the X number of dollars or this game's not going to be made. But the $20,000 ask I made on Kickstarter for Satellites and Commanders was a very real number. You know, there's also some... Uh, inside baseball in the sense of, okay, well, how many backers do we need to make this viable? Like what, what, what number of backers means they really want the product or it's just a pipe dream that I have that really shouldn't be realized, you know, and what's the product going to be valued at relative to the, uh, ask, because, you know, you can expect so many backers on a given, on a given launch. And then, you know, you really want to hit that 24 hour funding. I know I'm being kind of amorphous here, but that that's all to say that my goal on on every project has been really realistic. Like endangered, I set that goal way too high. It took us. Um, I mean, I needed that money, but uh, it took us way too long to hit it, and then way too long to hit the follow up stretch goal. Satellites and commanders. Uh, the pace of that campaign really wasn't actually as strong as I thought it was going to be from the get go, and so we actually ended up mucking around with the stretch goal amounts. We were uh, the first stretch goal was going to be at six thousand dollars above funding, and we were so close to funding. Talked to my project my my graphic designer who was preparing the graphics and um you know we actually cut it down to three thousand dollars because 
uh, the pace wasn't there. So that's another element is the pacing. You don't want to set a stretch goal at something that you're going to achieve within an hour. You know, it really needs to be a goal um, mm-hmm. and not just just an automatic because these things, I have to pay for art. I have to pay for the next punchboard sheet, all these things that need to happen as a function of it. So my numbers are really, really real. I mean, the other thing I'll say is, you know, and I don't mean this disrespectfully, but, um, you know, there are some people who could look at our satellites and commanders and campaign and go, oh, man, this is only like $20,000 and it's not racing up at a million miles a minute. And, you know, is he going to stick through this? Is this enough money? I mean, there's this whole meta around the Kickstarter game these days mm-hmm. that you you look at the creator of the project, you look at what they've done, what is their track record for delivering it all or delivering timely, what what goals do they want to hit with their projects. And you've seen many people pull up stakes and go, and I said this earlier, I haven't made enough money. I, I got to retool this. And I mean, well, then, you know, I mean, I, I don't know what's enough to any one project or one publisher. Um, I guess I just find that very disingenuous. It doesn't build confidence as a consumer. So when I look at Kickstarter and I see a company, this is your first Kickstarter ever created. I'm going to, I'm going to wonder about that. Right. Especially if you see somebody that, okay, it's a company that hasn't backed any Kickstarters and hasn't produced, like done any Kickstarters. It's just the first Kickstarter they've ever created and they haven't right. backed anything. Well, there's a whole, I have a whole other thing about that. I go into, I'm more frustrated as a publisher. Well, no, I'll speak. Let me speak to one frustration and I'll speak to another. Sure, man. Um, we got all, I, I got <laughs> nothing but time, man. <laughs> so, um, it frustrates me when a publisher who has projects under their belt decides that when their project funds, it didn't fund fast enough. It didn't fund enough. And so they pull up stakes. You know, this isn't their first rodeo. I don't know what they're after. I do think it undermines trust. That's just just my opinion. Okay, plenty of people I like and respect have done it. Uh, you know, that's just not me. And who knows? Maybe one day it will be me. Somebody will play this back for me and I'll eat my words. And I'll be like, oh, <laughs> what, what little did I know? I also find it very intriguing when a first-time project just goes gangbusters. And it's this monster project with minis and bits and all the hopes and dreams packed into this thing. And I, I, I marvel. I'm like, wow, you you hundreds and thousands of people are trusting this first-time creator. And, um, and here I have a track record of a dozen projects, m- pretty much delivered all on time, and they're just tearing me apart, you know, like <laughs> looking at everything and going, why did he do this? Why did he do this? So whatever. It's all a game. I'm, you know, I keep on keeping on. I do my thing. Um, but... I think what I'm trying to wrap around to is when I wrote my first update to the current campaign, I did put in there a whole section, my commitment to you, this project will not be canceled because I think there are some people who might've looked at it, said, is this going to be enough for him? And why bother pledging? Because he's going to, he's not going to follow through. And that's not the case. Um, You'll see when this episode drops, um, you know, the project is funded and, you know, hopefully we're going to bang into a crazy final 48 hour. I've seen that, or I've looked at projects that you know you hit the remind me or whatever and you're like okay and then you come back a couple days later and you're like where's that project at oh all of a sudden it's canceled and then they're redo retooling something which has always made me wonder is was it not ready for kickstarter did it just not did they not do enough social media to get the numbers that they're trying to hit initially like what where's the disconnect well everyone wants to fund it yesterday and When, you know, when they don't make that number and their project isn't blowing up, suddenly reality smacks them in the face. And they're like, oh, wait a second. This is real work, you know, um, you know, and it's not just going to happen because I presented a project no matter how beautiful it is. I think my frustration with Kickstarter, since we're talking about frustrations, I'm going to I'm going to hop on hop on this bandwagon. <laughs> 
is Simon, come on, whatever they want to call themselves these sure. days. The fact that you are such an established company with evergreen games and you're still taking all these things to Kickstarter with these outrageous stretch goals. Like what? Wh- like it almost feels like they're using it as a pre-order system than they are an actual Kickstarter. They totally are. I mean, again, from the way I operate, I don't agree with it. But, you know, if you're a smart business, you go where the money is. My, my desire to be free of Kickstarter, I'm sure some people view that as really stupid. You know, why risk your own capital when you can risk other people's capital? You know, if if Simon or any other company just folds, everyone just kind of shrugs and goes, oh, I guess that's the way it goes. Yep. You know, and individually, you've only lost $60 or $100 or whatever the case may be. Take a loan from a bank and you owe them half a million dollars. You can't run from that. So, well, you can, but probably not successfully. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, they'll find you in Mexico. Yeah, I do question it. I, I agree. I find it a little odd, but hey, whatever. It's just, I don't know. And like you see those Marvel Unit to speak to Marvel United. There's pictures all over Facebook, Instagram, whatever, where people are standing next to the amount of content and it's taller than they are. Yeah. See, that's another thing. And I was joking with a friend the other day. I said, you know, I think I'm going to make my next project called Bloated and I'm going (laughs) to sell it as a chock full of components, completely underdeveloped game that couldn't possibly have been tested all the way through. And I'm going to sell it for $200. Back me now. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that's never going to be the... um, uh, Grand Gamers Guild experience. Yeah, you need I minis look, in there. You need all those lavish minis, right? right? That's what you need. I mean, I do envision one day an endangered big box, and I do envision one day an Artemis Project big box, but I I don't ever want to put out a game that honestly is not going to be played because mm-hmm. there's so much content, and in four months we've all moved on to the next new thing mm-hmm. that it never sees table time, and you're never going to get through everything you purchased. That is, it's, un- it's unpalatable to me. It's not not who I am. Um, yeah, I agree. And I like all my games in one box, all of one game in one box. Well, it's the uh, Awakened Realms. And I, you know, I'm guilty of this because I have several Awakened Realms games. But the amount of content you get, you open it up and in your head, you're like, how am I going to even get through all this? Right. You know, and then your next Kickstarter is coming in by the time you've played one game of of this monster you've ordered. Yeah. And you're mm-hmm. like, oh, well, I guess that's just going to sit on the shelf. So, yeah, it's, anyway, you know, to each teach their own. I don't know. Probably not making some friends here or making some enemies here. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure it's fine. Uh, have you ever considered migrating to GameFound over Kickstarter? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, it's funny. I began a conversation with GameFound months ago, and I honestly kind of shut them down. And I'm like, eh. And they've been politely persistent with me. And there is a very good chance that my next project, Tierna Nog, uh, will see itself on GameFound. Like, what's the difference between, for you as a publisher, what's the difference between game found and kickstarter specifically for you i honestly can't answer that question i've not engaged the platform to know okay. however i did read a very good uh guest blog that stonemeyer games put out where he had interviewed someone about their experience between game found and kickstarter and they just talked about accessibility to customer service i mean with the publisher being the customer yep. the integrated pledge manager system um all those things sound very very appealing to me um, so yeah, I mean, you, 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 try something. Life is a series of experiments. So I'm going to experiment and we'll see how it goes. Um, one of the things that has always, uh, made me afraid to take that leap. I mean, insofar as when, since Game Found has existed is my audience is on Kickstarter. A lot of people don't want another platform. A lot of people don't want another account, yep. you know, but I think that there, uh, now is enough. There are enough folks on Game Found 
that we can find our place there. Yes. And, and, and honestly, in the scope of projects, this is going to be a tableau building card game. So the risk is a little less there um, in terms of, you know, the cost involved. Yeah, I, if I remember correctly, because I saw that article from, from Jamie Stagmeyer. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but if I remember correctly, some of the things. So GameFound was originally developed with uh, Awakened Realms developed it specifically for their pledge manager. Yeah, absolutely. They didn't like what was out there, so they're like, we're going to make our own. Yep, they had the time and the resources. And, you know, look, if, if uh, they, they I'm a big fan of a podcaster named James Alisher who wrote a book called Choose Yourself. Well, bless Awakened Realms, they chose themselves. They said, we're going to do this, and we're going to go through the foibles and the, the growing pains and figure it out, and they did. And then they evolved into a platform now that you do the front end of the Kickstarter, not just the back end. And now instead of giving all that money away, they're taking it in. I am, I'm small as a publisher. I'm intentionally small. That means costs are a lot of times higher. You, you outsource things to people who have the infrastructure built, and that's what I'll do. But, oh, you know, Awakened Realms did a great job. How important as a small publisher to kind of deviate a little bit away from Kickstarter? How important as a as a publisher is it to have that evergreen game? It really is important. I mean, even with Endeavor Age of Sale and Endangered, which which are, I don't know, evergreen-ish, um, I think time will tell on on Endangered. It is uh, you know, I mean, that's the cash that makes everything else happen. So it, it is what everyone's looking for. Even if it even if it's not a blockbuster hit which Endangered was not at first, uh, the fact that people keep wanting it and when you meet the right people who are in the conservation arena and they're just, their mind is blown by what they see, it's, uh, you know, it's very gratifying to know that it still has legs and it can keep going. And yes, it helps make other things happen. So you mentioned Endangered and I was curious because oftentimes you'll see publishers have, our games will have multiple publishers listed on them. Mm -hmm. So for example... It could be like Eggert Spiel and Z-Man Games, for example, or whatever. Yep. And Endangered is, or not Endangered. Um, Endeavor? Endeavor is an example of that yep, yep. where you distribute United States and then other publishers will distribute outside of the United States. They've localized it to their to their country and their language. So how does that, how does that work? Like who actually owns that game? Do they? Do you get paid a royalty for people to publish it overseas? Like, how does sure. that work? So basically, what happens is when you have a game, you know, that other people want in other countries, um, as a publisher, as a small publisher, especially, it's really difficult to um, navigate those inroads into Spain or France or Germany. I mean, not only are they thousands of miles away, it's a different language, they have mm -hmm. different laws, um, and you just don't know it well enough typically to do it yourself. So you try to ally with other publishers. And essentially, I mean, in a nutshell, for the rights to your game, they pay for their own manufacturing, and then there's a royalty on top of it. They do the translation work. Um, we tidy up the files. We send it all to the manufacturer at once so we can get the best pricing for manufacturing. And then my stuff ships to me, and their stuff ships to them. And then, you know, in the best of worlds, you all sell through and you reprint. I mean, but that is like a dream come true when your game has legs enough to be uh, recognized by foreign publishers. Because... I don't want to say it's free money, but you've already put your blood, sweat, and tears into creating your language edition. Mm -hmm. And for someone to just go, I want this too, you know, it's just great. It's 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 wonderful. It's extra work, but it's uh, the money you make is, you know, it's not proportional. Like you don't put in near as much work to bring it to fruition. 
mm-hmm. which is nice because it almost they assume part of the risk in distributing it. Yeah, and the more people that can see a game, obviously, the better it's going to do on you know Board Game Geek. Well, whatever everywhere happens. it's yeah. an upward spiral for everybody involved. Yeah. Okay. Games funded. How do you put together your actual timeline from Kickstarter to game in hand? Sure. So these days. Uh, with the logistics mess the way it is. I mean, oh, it's time, be time, timelines are a joke. <laughs> they are a joke. Um, but in the best of worlds, um, what I typically anticipate when the Kickstarter closes is, and this is completely from an internal perspective, I have about 30 days to tidy up the files and get them manufacturer ready. Then we get them, if we have foreign partners, we get them to those foreign partners and go, here's all the final files, do your thing. You have 30 days to make that happen. Then deliver us your files which the graphic designer then has to make sure that they all are in a format that the manufacturer can accept. And then we send them off to the manufacturer and the manufacturer checks them, uh, make sure that they are truly ready to move to the manufacturing process. And um, then that process is probably two to three months. And then it all gets on various boats. And then at this point, I mean, in a normal world, the process of getting it overseas is another Two months, let's say. So what do we have? 30 days, 60 days, maybe another five months. So that's seven months now. And then another month to actually get it fulfilled. So eight months, maybe eight to ten months um, in, 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 a, in a normal world uh, to Pre, get it out. Pre-pandemic. There. Pre-pandemic. Yeah. What is it now? Now it's anybody's guess. I mean, <laughs> I have some projects that I'm reprinting that are not going through Kickstarter that I'm desperately hoping will be here in time for Christmas. Um, and I mean, whatever we are in May, right. And they're already being printed and, and it's like, that's like six months away. And I'm wondering if they'll be here because you have to wonder how long it's going to take to get on a boat. Once it's on a boat, you have to wonder how long it's going to take to get overseas. Once it's overseas, you have to wonder how long it's going to take to get into a port. Then you have to wonder how long it's going to take to be able to get on a truck. And then is that truck going to make it to a destination on time? Oh, I mean, it's five variables, every domino missing the domino after it, you know, yeah. and then you got to knock that domino over. And then it misses the next one. It's it's terrible. Well, it's almost like in some ways it's like catching a connecting flight. If your first flight is delayed, you might not catch your connection flight. Well, now what are you going to do? You right. have to sit there and like figure out a new flight or whatever. Exactly. Yeah, that uh, the logistics of you know being a person that has backed Kickstarters and I'm you know obviously waiting on some. There's when you get some of these updates about fulfillments and there was um there's one in particular that I'm thinking of. It's uh. Our Arcana Rising by okay. uh, Gray Fox Games, mm. and like that's an established publisher, right? Yeah. And the amount of extra work they've had to like do in order to actually be able to ship that, just based on the updates that like I was getting, is this game funded pre right now, well, maybe right in the beginning part of the pandemic. So then all of a sudden, like shipping costs skyrocketed, and they were going to lose so much money on the project that they ended up saying, hey, you know, we're selling these like sets of dice. If you guys want to partake in that, that's going to help us like offset our costs for shipping. And as a backer, I'm like, okay, I can understand that. You know, I live, I'm realistic in the world of what we live in today with logistics and everything like that. But then, you know, I see them launch other Kickstarters and I see them launch stuff on GameFound. And it makes me wonder like, why aren't you guys trying to fulfill that one project first mm-hmm. before you move on to these other things? Sure. Like, I can't speak to Gray Fox Games situation right, specifically. Yeah, yeah. I can say that as a project creator, if I had to ask my backers for significantly more money, 
that would take an incredible swallowing of my pride and yeah. just be so professionally painful. I would avoid everything to do that before before I have to ask for more when I've already made a commitment based on yeah. certain numbers and, and, and budgets and things like that. I think it is potentially very easy to become a Ponzi scheme where your next project and uh, those monies coming in are funding the things you did before. And then that whole house of cards eventually collapses. Um, I yeah, have no idea. Sustainable. You know, I don't know. I have no idea who's in that situation. Um, but I guarantee you there are organizations in that situation. Um, just hoping that costs will go down enough that the uh, intensity of the Ponzi scheme can can lessen. Does it? And it doesn't seem like that ever happens. It seems like once somebody gets in that loop, like you're not. Yeah. There's no way you can crawl out of it. Yeah. I mean, and, and we're in a perfect storm of bad circumstances to make it damn near impossible. Yeah, I mean Kickstarter for and Kickstarter fulfillments. I believe, like at least for me, have always kind of been a joke. Like, oh, you'll re- you'll see- receive it in May twenty twenty three. Well, right. yeah, like maybe. <laughs> so you know what's funny about that is when I launched the Artemis Odyssey, I I always had a long term plan to get the Artemis Odyssey funded and prepped, then do the satellites and commanders Kickstarter. And since I believe there'd be a large Venn diagram overlap in those backers, I would manufacture and ship and fulfill them all together. So I launched this project, the Artemis Odyssey, and I put the timeline out 18 months. And I had a lot of people questioning me about why I did that. So I'm thinking, not only are we, not only do you not know my plan, which I don't expect them to know my plan, but we're in the middle of a pandemic here. Do you think all those other timelines are realistic? You know, so it's kind of like you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. If you try to be honest about it, people lose faith in you, you know, Mm -hmm. and if you are... I don't want to say dishonest, but let's say if you're optimistic, optimistic. you know, that you're yeah. going to be able to get things done, then you spend oodles of time writing updates saying, this has been delayed again. This has been delayed again. I'm so sorry. This, that, and the other. When do you want to take the frustrated customer? You either take it at the front right. end when you put a realistic project or you do exactly. it while you're doing updates. Yep. Yep. But you just got to take all your experience and do the best you can, you know, and make the, make the projections. I mean, fingers crossed. I mean, another reason why I put the fulfillment date for odyssey so far out was because i was hoping that we would be past the pandemic and past all the logistics issues well trying to keep shutting (laughs) down different regions and that doesn't make anything any easier when we're all making stuff over there it's tough man like i can't even imagine trying to fulfill stuff especially with just raw material shortages and not being able to get certain types of plastics and that being i can't I can't imagine the logistical nightmare that people are dealing with right now, especially with even companies that don't necessarily fulfill Kickstarters, that companies just in general trying to fulfill products that they make. Yeah. You know, it's pretty ridiculous right now. It is now. crazy times. And war doesn't help either. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Especially when, like, the, it's the third largest uh, oil distributor in the world going to war. Yep. I don't have any opinions about Kickstarter. You don't have it. You don't talk to. Them I mean, Kick- I have opinions, but I don't have very good ones, so I don't. I'm say. curious to hear your opinions on Kickstarter. Let's do it. What do you got? I don't know. I don't want to say it. Not when we're for Mark when we're talking about going to Kickstarter and promoting it. You can. You can not like Kickstarter. You yeah. Know? I just don't. I'm just not involved in Kickstarter. Well, then. you know, I just, I just like. There's so for me. There's so many good games and like. I just kind of avoid it and just go for the games that I can buy right now. Yeah. And and I think, you know, I think in some ways we've actually traded the magic of walking into Origins or Gen Con or even your local convention mm-hmm. and seeing a game for 
this, you know, endorphin hit we get when we hit the pledge button and and then wait two years. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's really cool when you're wandering when a decade ago you were wandering the halls and you walked up to Days of Wonder and you're like, oh, what's this? You know, yep. and then you now, demo it and then take it home with you. Right. I don't even like demoing games that aren't available at conventions. Sure. I want to only demo it if I can turn around and buy it. Right. Yeah. So anyway, I think, I don't know, there is a part of me that would love to just produce a project, not in secret, but produce a project, show up with that at a convention, and just let it be. Yeah. And then somebody buys it because they're like, oh, what's this? I've heard of Grand Gamers Guild. You put out this game I like. I'm going to buy this too. Mm -hmm. You know, I haven't watched this on social media for the past two years, um, but it looks neat. Then they go and play it. And all of a sudden, you know, the people who played it with them are like, this was great. I played this last night. And it has, it has real energy not this trumped up social media driven mm-hmm. hype that is this ephemeral nothingness because it's not real it's mm-hmm. not real mm-hmm. yeah it's all people who know how to um and have put time into the marketing there's the days of walking into a convention and seeing a game you don't know about i feel like are long gone even so let's remove kickstarter from the equation altogether mm-hmm. kickstarter is not a thing which there, I agree with. Let's the, say crowdfunding. We shouldn't, yeah, okay, we shouldn't yeah, let sure. Kickstarter. Kickstarter has been amazing to me. Yeah, they exist. I exist because they exist. But well, that's, but you're talking about crowdfunding generally. Yeah. Well, to side tangent real quick about the Kickstarter crowdfunding in general, it makes a company like yours viable. Yeah. So there's, it's an amazing opportunity to have a company that has an idea, has these concepts, and be able to actually bring them to fruition, which is great for people because a lot of times people will have fantastic ideas, just not the capital to in order to do it. Right. But that said, with crowdfunding, you get that initial like, oh my God, I'm so excited for this game. I'm going to wait two years. Mm-hmm. And even, so let's get rid of crowdfunding and let's talk about conventions now. Okay, I'm go- Natasha and I are going to Origins. Well, if I want to know what's coming out, I just got to go to BoardGameGeek. There's a list. Every publisher puts on that thing what's being what our new game is. Yep. So there's not even that feeling of walking in like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to find. Like, mm-hmm. I, I want to find that hidden gem. No, you're not going to find the hidden gem. You just need to go to Board Game Geek and find well, it. Well, you can if you don't go look on Board Game Geek. Yeah, if but... If you don't do any prep work. Yeah, but still, I mean, more often than not, like, I I tend to go... I'm going to Origins this year. Unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to make Gen Con, but... In years past with Gen Con, I remember the exhibitor map coming out. Okay, cool. I would set it down. All right, let me see what games are coming up. And then I would mark the booths that I specifically wanted to go to to see what games they had, right. you know, and see that those specific games. So the discovery the, process has changed. It's completely different now than it used to be, mm-hmm. you know. I appreciate Kickstarter for what it is because of what you said of what getting being able to put out games that wouldn't otherwise ever see the light of day. And I think that's great. But it's it's just not a hobby that I'm into, I guess. Sure. Well, I mean, there's so many games, which brings me to another question. And very early on in this podcast, I posed this question to Natasha, and she said no. Is the industry bloated? Is there just so many games coming out every single year that it's just becoming this bloated thing, this bloated industry? Well, the games are coming out because people are buying them. Mm-hmm. That's what she said. So, <laughs> That's what I, said. I mean, is it frustrating to me as a publisher that I'm competing with 5,000 titles rather than 1,000 titles? Yeah. Of course. But I'm part of the bloat. So, you know, it is what it is. 
Yeah, people bu- people are buying them. You know, people P- are buying K- them. Kickstarter week. crowdfunding will always exist as long as people are paying for it. You as know, as long as they have the extra cash to put into the hobby. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. and it, and it gets a whole different style of games out. You know, we've seen that. You know how it's changed the artwork in games over time. So we see a lot more beautiful games now, a lot more beautiful minis. Has artwork ever been a thing that you've ever concerned yourself with, or have you always known that that's been a thing that you need to focus attention on? Because we talked about artwork and how the progression over the years has been amazing. Like you take some of these Alea games, take the Castles of Burgundy. That th- I mean, I I don't mind the artwork, but it's drab. It, you know? it is legendarily lackluster. Yeah, even <laughs> like a game like Carpe Diem that came out recently had a reprint. Because the certain colors that they had on the tiles, it wasn't colorblind friendly. Sure. So then they released another version after that too, because they were just like everyone's like, this artwork sucks. They're like, all right, well, we'll make it a little bit better. I don't think it was that much better, but like, how important is artwork to you in your games? Well, you know, we can do a lot of things to entertain ourselves. Watch a movie, read a book, um, and I think art is going to help create the most immersive experience. When I started publishing games, the bar had already been raised. So I didn't really yeah. have a choice to go under that bar. Um, at least personally, that's how I felt. Mm-hmm. So, you know, jumped in and just made sure that I got the best art I could for what, could, what I could afford uh, for my games. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's just the standard now. You can't make ugly games. You can and you have to have, in some ways you have to make sure you have like good bits and like the chunky feels like Garinto has those nice like plastic yep. pieces and they feel good in the hand, you know, that they kind sure of thing. sure do. What was your, you said Endangered was your most, six, least successful project? Uh, on Kickstarter, yeah. What was your most successful? Uh, the original Artemis project, I think did one and a quarter. So I think, yeah. I mean, I also co-published Endeavor Age of Sale with Burnt Island Games, and that yep. one did like half a million or something like that. But, you know, Endeavor is a different creature. It had, you know, it was a reprint. It was a top 200 game. People were clamoring for it. They were looking for that. So, and it was a co-publication. So I, I don't feel that I can, I think there are a lot of external circumstances that I can't 100% take credit for marshalling that to its its success. Is, it Does Burnt Island operate out of the States or is it? Canadian. It's Canadian. Okay. Yep. So they distributed the Canadian version. Well, no, we both did North America. Okay. Um, and then we had many partners on that project too. Your current game on Kickstarter is an expansion to the Artemis project, Satellites yeah. and Commanders. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about the Artemis project and then what Satellites and Commanders adds to that game. Sure. So the Artemis project is a dice displacement game, I like to call it, uh, where you're colonizing Europa above and below the ice. I think it's amazing. Um, it is sort of my go-to dice as worker placement game that I play these days. And, um, it just had a ton of design space and it was very, very well received. So, I mean, my hope was always to create expansion content and satellites and commanders is it is the first offering in that. So it brings two new concepts to the table. I bet you can't guess what they are. Satellites (laughs) and commanders. Weird. Um, (laughs) so the satellites, uh, uh, snug the corner of the board snug into these things called chariots and then on top of the chariot you have the satellites and you put your dice into them and then the satellites will rotate from one chariot to the other influencing that section of the board in a clockwise fashion mm. super cool i mean just the idea of satellites going around it, uh, it wouldn't have felt right if the satellites were not moving around the board so that mm-hmm. was sort of key to bringing that to fruition yep 
And then the commanders, um, they add a lot of flexibility to to your your colonists. Essentially, um, they serve as a wild. They uh, are more powerful, and they'll help you both in the game and at the end of the game in terms of scoring. So it's really really simple, quite frankly. But um, with a dozen different chariots, uh, three for each of the four corners of the board. There's a ton of different, you know, interactions and possibilities and replayability as people love to have these days. And the commanders just offer a lot. Artem- I'm going to interrupt myself. Artemis can be a very mean game if you want to be very mean. I've always said that it's always going to be highly interactive, but the culture around the table will determine how Artemis gets played. Yes. So <laughs> Yes, it will. Um, the dice you roll and the commanders will allow you to be meaner to one another if you want to. Because, for instance, you um, in some sections of the board, lower dice will collect resources before it's higher dice. So if you send a commander with a die, it can maintain its low number, but in its power on the back end, it's plus two. So, you know, someone thinks they're going to get things and you know, then you just slip in front of them and, and even get even more than the number would indicate. So it's nice. It, it is exactly the flavor of Artemis you would expect. It, it does. I mean, it, it's like we took it out and then produced an expansion, but we didn't do that. It was never in to begin with. It just mm-hmm. dovetails so nicely. Which is actually my, my next question with expansions like this. How often is a game presented to you? You say, all right, let's pull these pieces out because it's a bit much. We'll save these for an expansion. Is that how the process normally works? Or is it, no, all right, I've had these additional ideas of what we could add to the game, and then you develop an expansion later? Um, I think I can honestly say that with all of my projects, we have never, you know, excised material to use for later. With the exception of Endangered, because Joe came to the table with many, many, many scenarios. And for a brand new product, and it's modular, you know, you, you plug and play the different endangered animals that you want in the game. So, I mean, we could have taken time and put 40 animals into that game. Then we would have had to charge $500. Yep. No one was going to do that. So, you know, you got to say, okay, this is what it costs to make a scenario. This is how many we're going to put in the box. And quite frankly, we wanted more in that box for that price point. We just didn't hit the stretch goals for it. So that's why the pandas exist as a separate product. Because people wanted, the people who did believe in the product wanted more. Um, I just wasn't in a position to give them more without charging them for it. So that's being a small publisher, you know, making those tough decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but then you save content for an expansion and then you do have, like, your loyal fan base of the game is obviously going to be chomping at the bit for that yeah. extra content. Yeah, New Species did wonderfully. Seven new animals, six new scenarios. And the artwork in that game is phenomenal. Thanks. Yeah, especially... We've had, we had a lot of artist woes. There's been three different artists on that project, so oh, really? maybe, maybe one day when we get to the big box, we'll be able to hire one person or at least a set of people who, you know, redo all the artwork and it all looks 100%. I mean, I, I guess I'll take it as a testament to what we did that, you know, you're not like, hey, that card looks completely different from this card. It must be two different people. There are sometimes expansions that do that, that mm-hmm. I've noted that you can notice there's a difference between the artists. Right. But didn't Beth Sobel do Endangered? Beth Sobel did our box cover yeah. for the original game, and she did about 25% of the interior art. Okay. Um, but then we had to move on to a different artist named uh, Ben Flores, who did the other, say, 75% of the interior art. Yeah, it, it might be more like 50-50. I, it's hard to remember. We're talking years ago now. Sure. Fair enough. When... When are you going to come out with the campaign version of Artemis Project? Like, oh, like a campaign game? <laughs> um, 
Because I feel like every game has a campaign now. <laughs> well, you know, early in the initial campaign, people asked us, so we have six, you have events in the game. And people did mention the idea it would be cool to have the six events that benchmark the six rounds tell a story. Yep. That idea is on a back burner for now. So, so oh, maybe, potential, huh? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Now, is it going to be a 24-part campaign? I'm not saying that's impossible, but that is actually not a discussion I've had with uh, the designers. Oh, yeah, that would be cool, though. I don't know. I, I, I personally like some campaigns, but the problem, too, tends to be, am I actually going to play through it enough times exactly. to, you know. Go back to my project called Bloated. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Know? I would I'd back that thing. I, I have like, only As played, long as the minis are good. <laughs> I have only played one campaign game. It was my city. I did it at the Gathering of Friends this year. The games were between 15 and 30 minutes, and we banged through like 24 games in three days. Mm-hmm. Wasn't it was, that a legacy game, too? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay sorry. Yeah, I'm yeah. Probably conflating my legacy and campaign terms, but um, anyway, that was fantastic. I would uh, if if I could produce something like that. But I mean, Artemis Project is a midweight euro. You're not getting through a game of that of any substance without an hour. Asking someone to commit 24 hours, whew, that's well. A, I mean, take a look at like, yeah, take a look at a game like Gloomhaven though that has like you've had people play that game for 200 hours and they're not even remotely close to being yep. done. And like I said earlier, I get easily bored. That is not something I'm willing to do. I tried. I tried. You tried Gloomhaven? About, about 30 games. And, uh, that's still, good. Yeah, it's still a lot. Yep. Yeah. And uh, I, you know, the honestly, 15 of those 30 games were only because my sons were really enthusiastic about it, and it was spending time with them. Mm-hmm. So uh, I just fair enough. rolled up my sleeves and said, okay, here we go again. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I actually got, I had some friends who gifted me a version of Gloomhaven, or gifted me the Gloomhaven. And uh, I was like, I was so pumped. I was like, yes. And... She had organized it all. Oh, wow. And like that that's a bigger gift than just giving it to me. Right. And the thing is, so I'm like, I get it home. I pull the top of the box off and I'm like going through that stuff. I was just like, dang, she and she organized it. I was like, I have no clue what's going on here. I started like flipping through some of the books. I'm like, I can't. I just can't. Like as a completionist, I'm gonna want to run through this whole thing. So then, uh, my wife and I got through Jaws of the Lion. I'm like, okay, I feel good. I feel good about what I was able to <laughs> get through. Yeah, it was just a lot. It's daunting. All right, so Artemis Project, Satellites and Commanders. It will officially end Kickstarter June June third. June third is gonna be done. Yeah, I think at 10 p.m. or something like that. Okay, so head on over to Kickstarter, check them out. We are fully funded. We're right now working on stretch goal number three, probably be through that well and truly by the time this podcast drops. And, uh, you know, if you don't already own the Artemis project, grab that too. I mean, yep. well, you'll have to, you'd have to. So, <laughs> so. Yeah. well, I just want the cool satellites and the dice. I was like, <laughs> put it, put, put them in some other space game. Nice. Always trying to grow my ease, my e newsletter where you can sign up at the top of the page at grandgamersguild.com. Honestly, I'm personally almost completely done with social media. I actually took all, all it all off my phone. Um, I just can't take it anymore. Uh, <laughs> it's been especially bad as of late, honestly. And um, but I, but I have an amazing social media manager who keeps my my professional presence robust and alive. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Um, we will keep content going there. But I would much rather be able to talk to you directly through my e newsletter. You know, I'm just tired of chasing algorithms that say, you know, that make it hard to reach the people that say they want to hear from me. Yep. You know, that was their master plan all along. And uh, I just, you know, do my own thing. What kind of, so what's your convention schedule coming up? What conventions are you going to be at? Origins, Gen Con, Essen and PAX Unplugged. I will be at all of them uh, with, with all the new things. Aldabas and 
um, a sample of the Artemis Odyssey and uh, Forgotten Depths, which is a um, very low print run dungeon crawler game that uh, we collaborated with a small company called Void Night Games on. Um, you had me at dungeon crawl. Yeah. So you, had me at dungeon crawl. you should see this thing. It's a monster. I mean, the box is humongous. Anyway, super excited to uh, do the conventions this summer and be a little little bit more back to normal. Yeah. I'm yeah. Too. It'll be nice. Yeah, for sure. Well, I appreciate you coming out and sitting down with us. And yeah, it was, uh, it's very enlightening to hear the process behind it all. I know for like mm-hmm. me personally, I, it's always fascinated me. I've always like, man, I can design a game. And then I realize, no, I probably can't. <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, I, you know what? I could, I could maybe publish a game. Mm, probably not. <laughs> right. I think you could, but we all have limited time and we all have limited resources. So you just got to figure out what you want to do. I don't know yeah. if that, I don't know if that's in my skill set. <laughs> well, thanks for having me. It's been great. And I'm happy to do it again. If, uh, you know, if I have been oh, entertaining. Definitely. Yeah, for sure. That's our show for this week. Thanks for listening to our shenanigans. Join us next week where we're going to talk about going to origins and what we plan on doing there. Please leave us a review and check us out on Instagram or Facebook. Send us your questions to boardgameshenanigans at gmail.com and have a great week. See you next week.